This is supposed to be an intellectual retreat. You might be asking yourself, what does that mean? It's different from an intellectual conference, like an academic conference, that aims principally at acquiring academic knowledge. We care about that, and I hope that you will acquire some academic knowledge in the course of this weekend. But it's different from a purely academic event because our aim is not only to feed your intellect, but also your soul. In fact, from a Thomistic perspective, feeding your intellect is feeding your soul. And we want these two to come together and to, to resonate with each other. It's also not like other retreats you might have been on. I don't know what kinds of retreats you've been on. When I was in high school, I went on some retreats that, looking back on them from the perspective of a Dominican priest, didn't seem very retreat-like, except insofar as retreat came to mean uh, an emotional experience with your friends. Some retreats will emphasize maybe uh, having individual prayer experiences or something like that. And we hope that you have that too here, but that's not principally what our time together will involve. We want you to enter into this intellectual retreat thinking about a profound mystery of our faith, which we hope will help you enter more profoundly into the mystery itself. So that's the goal, is to enter into that mystery. But to enter into it, having used all of the resources of your intellect to understand, insofar as we can, the mysteries of the faith. And from a Thomistic perspective, this, properly speaking, makes you a contemplative. Now, there are contemplative nuns who are praying for you, and they live a contemplative life. We may not all have the luxury of living a contemplative life in the same way, but we are here to be contemplatives. That means, according to Aquinas, to gaze upon the truth, to probe its meaning, to seize its meaning more deeply, to marvel at it, to praise God for its beauty and its power. And that's why we will have the Eucharist at the center of our time together. Not only in our talks, the conferences, but also in the chapel, so that you can think about and also enter into that mystery. So take advantage of that time. I hope that the conferences and your time in the chapel will, will resonate together. That's also why I suggested that you bring a Bible. I don't know, that message went out very late, so I don't know how many of you actually were able to uh, get a Bible to, to be with you this weekend. But I, I hope that some of you do, or a very imperfect substitute if you have some electronic access to, to a Bible. I think it, it, would be, it would be good if you could fast from too much contact with the outside world. So text messages and emails and checking Facebook or all of those other things. Now I know sometimes it's very anxiety producing for people to think about totally shutting those things down. But the more you can do that, the better. 
But if there's an exception, maybe it's to read the Word of God on, on your phone. Put your phone on airplane mode, but uh, get the Bible on there first. Ideally, you would have time this weekend to spend some time with the Word of God. And in your free time, or a quiet time in the evening, to read over and pray with passages from the Bible, especially passages that deal with the mystery of the Eucharist. And I think you will find that the Holy Spirit will speak in a powerful way as you meditate on this mystery, as you pray before the Blessed Sacrament, and then as you, as you listen to the Word of God as it reveals this mystery to us. So you might, for example, read John chapter 6. Or maybe you'd read Exodus chapter 24. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Or passages from the letter to the Hebrews. There's many passages you could read, in other words. Pick something that speaks to you and spend some time with it this weekend. So, Jesus, on the night before he went to his passion, assembled the twelve apostles with him at the Last Supper. A profound moment. The last evening of his earthly life with them. And he instituted the Eucharist and commanded them to do this in memory of me. Which is what we do when we celebrate the Mass. It's the center of our worship as Christians. It is even the center of the Christian life. Listen to the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium, chapter 11. Taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the fount and apex, you could translate it the source and summit, of the whole Christian life, the Eucharistic sacrifice is the source and the summit, the fount and the apex of the whole Christian life. The faithful offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves with it. So our Christian life depends in a way on our faith in the Eucharist, or it, it somehow is configured around that mystery, which is worth both the source and the summit of our Christian life. So this talk aims to enter a bit into the scriptural background for our reflection on this mystery. So we're going to have two parts to this talk, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not very surprising. My hope is that we will be setting the table, as it were, for the rest of the conference. Because everything else that we do in theology, of course, proceeds from sacred scripture from divine revelation. So as we talk about Aquinas' theology of the Eucharist, we will be going deeper into the mystery that the Word of God reveals to us. Now, there are a great many Old Testament texts that we could pick if we wanted to start meditating on the Old Testament background to the Eucharist. So I can only pick the highlights here. And we're really just getting a very, very brief tour, so I'm going to have to move rather quickly. But the central text that I think helps us understand what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper is found principally in the book of Exodus. So, let's begin there. 
with the book of Exodus, where you find the Passover and the institution of the law and the covenant sacrifices and the covenant that Moses institutes. You also find, of course, the manna. So, you know the story of the Exodus, the birth of Moses. Moses receives a revelation of God, is sent to Pharaoh to liberate his people in slavery in Egypt. And when Moses appears the first time to Pharaoh in Exodus 5.1, he is directed by the Lord to say, let my people go. But it's not just that. Listen to what follows. Let my people go, that they may sacrifice to me in the desert. And what is Pharaoh's first response? This is Exodus 5.4. Why are you taking the people away from their work? Work. Now, this is a very important lesson for us already. We live in a culture where work is the most important thing. It defines who you are. Many people think that that's why they go to university, so that they will have a good career and get a good job and then have good work. But this is not the goal of your life. And the Exodus makes this point very clearly. Pharaoh is the advocate of total work, the life of work. God asks for worship, something that transcends your life of work. So, Moses works miracles to change Pharaoh's mind, nothing doing. Then plagues. He turns water into blood. Then you get the frogs, then the gnats, then the flies. So finally, Pharaoh calls Moses back and offers him a compromise. Okay, he says. Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. That is, within Egypt. But Moses insists that the people must go out into the wilderness and sacrifice to our God as he commands us. In other words, the worship of God is subject to no political compromise. No king has the authority to determine how God will be worshipped. So Moses brings more plagues, the death of cattle, boils, hail, and this brings Pharaoh to a second compromise. This is Exodus 10, 11. The men can go out into the wilderness, but the women, the children, the cattle have to stay behind. Now Pharaoh is assuming the current pagan religious background, where men are the ones who enter into divine worship. But Moses refuses to negotiate with a foreign potentate over the terms on which God will be worshipped. So Pharaoh then offers a third compromise after the locusts and the darkness. Exodus 10.24 Everyone can go, but the flocks and the herds must remain behind. Moses refuses. He says, We do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. This is not just a ploy on Moses' part. He is being obedient to God's command. And that command admits of no compromise or exceptions. Now, you might think that the Exodus is about escaping slavery and attaining political freedom in the Promised Land, and there's certainly a dimension of that. 
But above all, what shines through is that God calls His people to worship Him, and they must be free to do that. So they go into the desert in order to worship. In fact, even possessing the land for the Israelites is understood as the place where now there will be a people who worships only God, the true God, and lives as he wills. This is not the establishment of some new political regime. It is the establishment of the people that belongs to God and that is oriented entirely to him. So, the action of the story of the Exodus is interrupted to describe the Passover ceremony and the Passover lamb, how this final plague will be brought by God upon the people of Egypt. So you have this at text A on your handout. The institution of the Passover. Now I'm not going to read the whole thing out loud. You can read over it yourself if you want to go over it. But what are the key things to note? The Passover lamb that God asks for is a lamb without blemish, free of defects, a male lamb, a year old. None of its bones are to be broken. They are to sacrifice the lamb and to let its blood pour out. Now this is important, of course. Why? Because they are to take the blood and place the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their homes. So the blood is highly symbolic. It is the blood of this lamb that protects the people from death. It has the power to save them so that the angel of death will pass over them. Now often, we stop there. That's already a lot. It's already extremely profound revelation. But there's something more that is commanded here. Genesis 12, 8. You have to eat the lamb. You collect the blood. And you eat the flesh of the lamb. This was not optional. In the Passover rite, as it's codified later, and as you read about it later in the Pentateuch, it's very clear that this annual memorial feast of the Jewish people is constitutive of belonging to the people. And if you want to eat of the Passover sacrifice, if you want to eat the Passover lamb, you had to belong to the people, which meant males had to be circumcised. An uncircumcised male may not eat of the Passover meal, may not eat the lamb. In other words, only those who belong to the covenant family of God may eat the lamb of the Passover. And this Passover was to be kept as a perpetual remembrance of what God accomplished in the Exodus, which constituted these people as his own. You see that in, in paragraph, uh, or uh, in Exodus 12, 13, 14. 
So, after the Passover event, of course, you have the crossing of the Red Sea. We could talk about that, passing through the water from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from the place where God is not worshipped to the place where God can be worshipped, of course, echoing baptism, foreshadowing it, prefiguring it. We pass through the waters of baptism and are made qualified to worship God. Then, in the desert, Moses goes up Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, this is Exodus chapter 19 and 20, this is exactly in the middle of the book of Exodus, which in the Jewish mentality is very important because the, the middle is the most important part. If you count the words, you arrive at the middle, and it's exactly where God reveals the law to Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are not just God imposing his alien will on the people. It's revealing how to live if you want to be a member of God's covenant family. How to live as a people that belong to God. That is, the people who have been constituted by this exodus and who remember it by the Passover lamb. Then you get an extremely interesting passage just after Moses comes down from the mountain. And this is very important for our subject. It's text B on your handout. The blood of the covenant. So Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. By the way, these are famous last words because the whole history of the rest of the people is that they don't do this. And God is repeatedly telling them by the prophets, you're not doing what you promised to do. And you have plagues and exiles and all kinds of uh, trauma because they don't do what they promised. But they do promise to do it. So then what does Moses do? Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. This is very significant. He builds an altar. He surrounds it with twelve pillars. Those pillars stand for the twelve tribes. That constitutes the people. And then, he sacrifices an ox and takes half of the blood in basins, and half he threw against the altar. Now, this is very strange to us. But what happens next is even more strange. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The altar represents God. 
And the people and the altar now have blood thrown on them, sprinkled on them. And, according to some historians, this echoes an ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony, which signifies that normally it would be blood thrown on two people, signifies that you become blood brothers. But here, it is the people who are now being made brothers of blood of God? What does the blood signify? The Old Testament is clear. It signifies the life which belongs to God alone. So Genesis 9, 3 to 4, God says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Or Leviticus 17, 10, If any man of the house of Israel eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. The blood was the most sacred part of the sacrifice. And in Exodus this blood this life is sprinkled on the people to consecrate them, to seal the covenant in blood. Now, after this, you know what happens. The people wander in the desert. They wander in the desert and they begin pining for the food of Egypt. So what does God give them? He gives them manna. Manna, which is bread on the way to keep the people alive by a miraculous feeding from God himself as they journey in the desert. So it's miraculous. The people don't know what it is. That's why they call it manna, which literally means, what is it? In fact, manna involves a double miracle because there's bread and there is flesh, the flesh of birds. It's a daily miracle, every day. God sends them this manna, except on the Sabbath. It cannot be kept except on the Sabbath. It's an unprecedented miracle, and it's temporary. It only lasts while they are journeying in the Promised Land. And it was viewed as holy, so that it was then reserved in the Ark of the Covenant, along with Aaron's rod and the tablets, was a container of this manna. Okay, then you have, coming to the end of the Exodus, eventually the death of Moses. Moses doesn't make it into the Promised Land, but he sees it from afar. But the Lord gives a promise of a new prophet who will be like Moses. This is text D on your handout. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your brethren, him you shall heed, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. 
And then verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not give heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So, the people enter the promised land, but of course we know that's not the end of the story. You have the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian exile, continued infidelity, all kinds of problems. And eventually, a crystallization of this hope for a new Moses, a new Messiah. And so by the time of the first century AD, when Jesus enters the scene, there is a strong expectation in some quarters in Israel for exactly this kind of new Messiah, a new Moses. Now, with that, let's turn to the New Testament. There is a growing consensus among scholars of the New Testament that Jesus did not just present himself, view himself as a prophet, but consciously presented himself as a new Moses, that he intentionally evoked this prophecy that a new Moses would come. And without doubt, the New Testament portrays Jesus in this way. In fact, the early Christian community very explicitly thought this. You can find it in the book of Acts. Acts 3, 19-23, the speech of St. Peter, just after the resurrection of Jesus, refers to Jesus as the new Moses whom God has sent, and saying to them, why didn't you listen? You knew that Moses would come. And then again in Acts 7, the speech of St. Stephen, he refers to it again. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. And they killed the one, the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. Very explicit, this association. But we could multiply other associations in the New Testament between uh, in the New Testament between Jesus and Moses. For example, he's taken into Egypt as a child and brought back out again because, Scripture says, God wanted his son to come from Egypt. He spends 40 days fasting in the desert, just as the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert before entering the Promised Land. He goes up a mountain and reveals the new law the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard it said, and he quotes Moses, and then he says, but I say to you, he gives a new law. He makes the covenant, the revelation of Moses, deeper, more profound. He chooses 12 apostles. He is refounding the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be the new foundation stones of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new pillars. And notice, he is not one of the twelve. He feeds the crowd in the desert. Let's look at text E, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus withdrew from there 
in a boat to a lonely place apart, and the crowds come to him, and he has compassion. Verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a lonely place. Twice, St. Matthew emphasizes, they are in the desert. They are someplace where there is no food. God teaches the people, and yet they have no food. Is this not like the revelation in the desert through Moses? Jesus says that, they should, that his disciples should give them something to eat, and he multiplies the loaves and the fish. A miraculous multiplication. He feeds the people with miraculous bread in the desert. The crowds understood that this was reenacting what Moses did in the desert with the manna. They understood then that this was the prophet come again. John 6, 14 to 15. This is the end of John's version of the feeding of the 5,000. When the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world, the new Moses. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd understood that by this miracle, Jesus was foreshadowing the inauguration of a new age where there would be a new banquet of heavenly food, food that could only be eaten in the new kingdom of God. But of course, they did not understand clearly what this meant, and they tried to make Jesus a king on earth which he refused. But of course he was instituting a new banquet with heavenly food to be eaten in his kingdom. And that would reach its culmination at the Last Supper. So, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in triumph. We reenact this on Palm Sunday. The crowds acclaim him as the Messiah. They lay down their garments and palm branches on the road. Everyone thinks that at last this new Messiah is entering the city of David. What does he do? Look at Matthew 21. This is text F. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they said, Hosanna to the son of David. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple of God, and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What is this? To understand Jesus' action in the cleansing of the temple, you have to understand how important the temple was 
for the mentality of the first century. In first century Judaism, the temple was a bit like the symbol of religious, the center of religious identity, the most sacred place on earth, combined with a symbol of political autonomy. It's a bit like St. Peter's Basilica and the Capitol building wrapped together if, if you're an American. Something like that. Jesus goes into that place where the temple sacrifices are carried out every day for the atonement for sins. Temple sacrifices that had been ordered by Moses. And what does he do? He interrupts them. Now it's not so clear, perhaps, from this text, if you're not familiar with what was happening in the temple. Why were there money changers? Because if you went to Jerusalem and you wanted to sacrifice, you needed a ritually pure animal. And where would you get it? You would buy it. But you had coins minted by the pagan Romans, so you needed to change your money to have temple currency. And then you needed to buy an animal that was being sold in the temple precincts. When Jesus drives out the money changers and those selling animals, he is stopping the sacrifices. The significance of this was not lost on the Jewish authorities. What was the charge at Jesus' trial? That he said he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. That was why they wanted him put to death. He was claiming to enter Jerusalem as the Messiah and to reconfigure all of Jewish worship, not around the animal sacrifices of the temple, but around himself, his sacrifice. Not the blood of animals, but his blood which would be poured out on the cross. So now, the Last Supper. If you turn the page, you will see this page, which gives you a synopsis of the Gospels. This is a special kind of book that if you're studying the New Testament, you can get, which shows you in parallel all of the places in the New Testament where the same account is uh, is laid out so that you can compare them very easily across and see exactly what is the same and what is different. So Jesus convenes his disciples for the Last Supper. What is the occasion? It is the Passover. We are back at the Exodus. It is the night when the people were saved by the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. This Passover feast was the perpetual remembrance of the gift of the covenant. Eating that feast is obligatory if you belong to the people who are in that covenant with God. Now, what was the Passover like in the time of Jesus? By this point, in the first century AD, the sacrifice of the lamb no longer took place in the homes of individual Jewish families. You had to make a, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, 
and the sacrifice was done by the priests in the temple. So there was a massive arrangement for the slaughter and pouring out of the blood of thousands of lambs on the same afternoon and evening. There is a 2nd century, 1st century B.C. Greek document known as the Letter of Aristeas, which described the Jewish temple in this way. Now the house, the temple, faces the east, and the whole floor is paved with stone and has slopes to the appropriate places to allow for the flushing of water, which occurs so as to clean the blood from the sacrifices. For many tens of thousands of beasts are brought for sacrifice on the days of the festivals. Imagine what that was like. Tens of thousands of animals brought and slaughtered on the same day. Now, in a Jewish sacrifice, what is the most important thing? It is not the death of the animal or even the roasting of the animal. That's what they did. They, they slaughter the animal. They collect the blood, and then they roast the flesh, and you would eat the flesh. That is how you share in the sacrifice, by eating the flesh. But the blood had to be poured out by a priest on the altar of the temple. It wasn't just that they were killing these, these lambs. They had to pour the blood on the altar. Now, the modern Seder meal, which maybe some of you have encountered, this is a later development in Judaism, after the destruction of the temple, and therefore after the Passover sacrifices had ceased. So it is framed as a sacred memorial meal. That's why it's not always the best place to start for understanding the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his apostles. It was more than just a meal. It was a sacrifice and the eating of the sacrifice. Now, it seems clear from the dating of scholars, and there's some controversy over this, that Jesus convened this Last Supper on the night of the Passover, the very night when the lambs were being eaten by the Jews immediately after the sacrifices of the lambs. And there are numerous similarities between what Jesus does and that Passover meal, but also key differences. There's no reference in this text to the body or blood of a lamb. It seems that at the Last Supper, which was supposed to be a sacrificial meal, there is no lamb to be eaten. But what Jesus does do is say that he offers his flesh to be eaten, and his blood, which is poured out for you, which he calls the blood of the covenant. And he tells the apostles to do this. He was instituting them as priests who would pour out the blood of the covenant. And just as at the Passover meal, you needed to eat the sacrifice, so also 
you really have to eat the flesh of Christ to participate in his Passover. So, to say this is a new covenant in my blood is profoundly charged with meaning for those apostles. It recalls, of course, Exodus 24. The twelve pillars, they are present. Jesus says that his blood is poured out. This is what the priests in the temple are doing at that very hour. He says it is the blood of the covenant, his life given up for the many. This probably echoes Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. You could think of many more things in the Old Testament that resonate here. The blood of Abel, for example, crying out to heaven. But we can perhaps uh, conclude this section by talking about the letter to the Hebrews. When Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls in which the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To serve the living God. This is what the people left Egypt to do. God called them to serve him in the wilderness with a sacrifice that he would provide. And this is what Jesus is instituting at the Last Supper. The way that we are to serve the living God. Therefore, the letter to the Hebrews continues, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus institutes a new covenant as the new Moses. He gives the new manna, which is his flesh and his blood for the life of the world. This is the banquet of heaven which we eat now under the signs of bread and wine, but which is, in truth, the true man, the body and blood of the Lord. And so we can conclude, then, by looking at the last page, Aquinas' beautiful short prayer about the Eucharist, which we say... As Dominicans, every time we are about to celebrate the divine office in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. O sacred banquet, this mystical banquet of heaven, in which Christ becomes our food. Actually, if you look at the Latin, it's even more explicit than that. O sacrum convivium in quo Christus sumitur.
in which Christ is received. Christ is received in this banquet. The memory of his passion is celebrated, is called to mind. That is what the Passover did, too. But now the mind, the soul, is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. This banquet contains Christ, and it looks back to his passion, but it transmits grace to us today and is the pledge that we will eat that banquet in glory with the saints forever in the life of heaven. <clears throat>